you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to the Josh Hammer Show. So today we've got my friend Steve Dace, host of the Steve Dace Show on Blaze TV. Can't wait to get to that. But before we do, this is yet another week where the Russia-Ukraine crisis is front and center of everything that's going on. I don't know about you guys. I am genuinely having a hard time thinking about much else. It's honestly starting to get a little depressing. Um, The cable news talking heads, the chattering class, the Twitter feeds, it is basically all everyone can think about. I mean, even here in Florida, where I'm recording from, there's, you know, an allegedly quote-unquote controversial bill that the Florida State Legislature just passed is now sitting on Governor DeSantis' desk ready to be signed. The corporate media has totally besmirched this and they have characterized it in in grotesque, totally unfair and warped fashion as the quote-unquote don't say gay bill. It's a perfectly anodyne and I would say quite effective and excellent piece of legislation. But even that, even here in kind of in Florida, it seems to me is getting drowned drowned out by what's happening over in Russia and Ukraine. So let's just stick with that for a little bit. So it's obviously a very fluid rapidly changing situation. The facts on the ground are changing on a, on a seemingly daily basis. But roughly speaking, for more or less the past week now, the Russian forces seem to have kind of gotten closer and closer to kind of taking over Kiev or Kiev or however exactly we're pronouncing the city these days. And uh, financial service companies, MasterCard and Visa, uh, they're pulling out left and right of, of Russia, right? I mean, saw Goldman Sachs, all these major kind of financial institutions are starting to kind of pull the plug on the Russian operations. In the legal world, which is kind of where I come from, we've seen some major law firms, uh, Latham and Watkins, I think I heard, which is a massive, big law firm with offices all over the world. They have shut down their Moscow office. Um, Query whether all of this is being done for the safety of the employees, whether it's being done for kind of uh, moralistic or humanitarian grounds or whatever. But holding all that aside, so the actual facts insofar as the United States is concerned, from my opinion, have not actually changed that much going on. And I wrote my column on this, my last column, and I, I called this last column the end of the of the unipolar moment. And we talked about this in the podcast a couple of weeks ago here. I think what you have to bear in mind here, if you are an American citizen, an informed citizen, if you are an American media consumer, if you are watching the cable news outlets from left to right center, all the newspapers, all the tweeters, all the blue check Twitterati, if you are watching all these people just freak the you-know-what out, over what is going on over there. I am not downplaying it, okay? It is bad. I mean, there is a massive humanitarian refugee crisis going on there. Over a million Ukrainians have, have had to flee. The nations of Poland and Hungary, which both share a border with Ukraine, have really kind of stepped up in taking over a lot of these refugees. On a personal note, I was watching just the other day on Fox News. They had a, they had a live reporter from Kaleti train station in Budapest, I was literally there less than a month ago. I was taking the train to the Hungarian countryside, and the Fox News reporter there is showing all these U- Ukrainian refugees kind of huddling to try and stay warm. It's it's not good stuff. It is bad stuff, and Putin ultimately is, of course, to blame for this, and the world should ultimately respond accordingly. But the bigger 35,000-foot altitude view, the view that you have to bear in mind here is that 
in the post-Cold War era, okay, the Berlin Wall comes down in 1989. The Soviet Union formally dissolved two years later in 1991. For 20, 25 years, we lived in a post-bipolar moment, okay? The Cold War was a bipolar moment of mutual assured destruction between the U.S. and the USSR. After the collapse of communism, you know, speaking personally, I was born in 1989. I was born in the year the Berlin Wall fell. This is the only era that I've known. I have grown up. I have grown up accustomed to this world, and I have started to follow global events and form opinions and all of that in the era of unmitigated American economic, diplomatic, geopolitical, whatever you want to say, might unmitigated American supremacy, basically, the era of kind of truly American exceptionalism is the unipolar moment where America basically just calls the shots. And I, I think the key thing to bear in mind, the key macro level event over the past five, 10 years, and we're kind of in the middle of it transpiring, it has not culminated yet, is that I think this era is fundamentally over. Because America is is basically, I, I hate to say it, guys, but in a lot of ways, it really feels like we're declining. It really feels like we're declining at the same time that it really, really, really looks to a lot of us like the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party is very, very much on the rise. But the point here is that America, from this perspective, as depressing as it may be, seems to me, it seems to me like the era of unmitigated American supremacy in the world is just frankly over. And to the extent that we should be re-engaging with Russia to try to use them as a cudgel against China, which is the elephant of all elephants in the room, that's exactly what we should be trying to do. That's what prudent American statesmanship in the year 2022 and this century for that matter absolutely requires. But stay with us. We're going to take a quick break now. On the other side, Steve Dace. Today, we've got a great friend of the program, someone whose show I've been on any number of times over the past few years. So happy to finally return the favor. We've got the great Steve Dace, host of the Steve Dace Show on Blaze TV. So, Steve, welcome to the program, brother. It is good to be with you, man. And congrats on the new show and uh, all your success. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, it's obviously the sentiment is obviously mutual. So, Steve, let's dive right in, I think, on an issue that it obviously has kind of been the front and center, not to the, of the conservative world, but obviously the front and center of the world period for the past two years, which is this dystopian COVID universe that we have lived through. I feel like more than most in our kind of broader orbit, you've really been on top of this thing since day one. You even wrote, you wrote a whole book on this, obviously, about Anthony Fauci as kind of being the worst bureaucrat in, in American history, a sentiment that I probably would be inclined to agree with. How early on did you know that this whole thing was basically a farce? Like when, like how early on going back to the early days of 2020, did you look at the world and just say like, we're being played, we're being played for fools? It really, for me, Josh, you have to go back to Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and, you know, I was um, uh, someone that early on, uh, the, the, the Trump presidential team uh, tried to woo to support uh, them because of where I live here in Iowa and the first in the nation caucus state. I got to see and know him up close and personal for well over a year. And I was just frankly concerned about his level of conviction on the things I care the most about. And I'd been coming out of several years of being lied to by so many politicians. Uh, I ended up going to work for the Ted Cruz presidential campaign. Obviously, we opposed Trump to the end. I was part of the delegates movement. I helped organize that at the convention that later that year. Uh, and then, you know, I, I don't end up 
voting for him because I don't think he'll live up to what we had, uh, what we believed. And then I suddenly I now find myself watching his presidency and I see him actually doing several of things. I thought there's no way he'll even try to do that. And I saw him do things like move the embassy. I saw him do things um, along both in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy uh, that um, that kind of challenged my paradigm. Then I watched things like the Mueller probe. And here's Bob Mueller with a 50 year record of really a heroic record of accommodation and service to the country. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, you know, somebody who's I've been friends with for a long time in this business, Dan Bongino, kind of went Steve Dace on the Russian uh, collusion probe from the beginning. And I, I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't know, you know, I can't, as much as I trust Dan's instincts, I just cannot believe Bob Mueller would throw his entire legacy away for a, a ham-fisted sham, you know, sort of, um, you know, idiot's guide to coup. You know, I just didn't <laughs> think that would happen. Then lo and behold, the report comes out, Mueller's testimony, which was even worse. And yeah, now suddenly I'm like Harrison Ford and, in, 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 you know, in, in the, 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 the Force Awakens. It's true, all of it, you know? And then comes, and then comes Brett Kavanaugh, a terrible n- nominee, in my opinion. Basically, I think I called him Karl Rove in a black robe at the time. Yep. Uh, and, um, and then they, you know, the Christine Blasey Ford allegations begin. And I'm like, hey, let's have a hearing. You know, maybe she's maybe she's telling the truth. I don't know. Turns out she can't even draw the fact she can't even draw a connection, even knowing Brett Kavanaugh. Forget the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas thing. She at least knew Justice Thomas. She can't even confirm that she and him had ever met. So it was clear this entire thing was a sham. And and that, that those few peri- that that period of a few years, Josh, tremendously radicalized me informationally. Tremendously. I mean, I, I came from being someone that was pretty, uh, pretty right wing, but considered, um, uh, you know, fairness to be uh, of the utmost importance. I had relationships with people in the newsroom at the Washington Post and New York Times. Some of I mean, the New York Times had just done a huge feature on me in 2015. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had prominent reporters from such entities on in my home as guests. I'd been on MSC, MSNBC and CNN as a panelist probably over 40 or 50 times. And, and now I find myself, wow, we have, we're not even biased anymore. This is just not even factual. It's just malfeasance. This is just, you know, an attempt propaganda flat out. And so it's, it's important to understand where I was at when COVID arrived. Right. I had already been pretty broken informationally. I'm pretty radicalized at this point. And so I start hearing about what's going on in Italy and I start doing the research on the data. And it's nowhere, it's serious, it's a bad outbreak, but this, it's, it's you know, it, we're talking scant percentages overall of the population, and we're getting these videos of burning bodies and things of that nature, and I'm, and I'm doing the math on their own data, and it just doesn't make any sense that a country of 60 million people only has like 2,000 ICU beds, is what we were being told or something at the time. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And then the Imperial College survey comes out, and man, that feels uh, like it started cutting off. That feels like so long ago at this point, doesn't it? The does. Imperial College, my it god, was almost, it was almost exactly two years to the time you and I are taping this wow. interview right now. Unbelievable. March 16th, 2020 is when it came out, and I remember reading it for the first time sitting alone in my man cave. And my kids are upstairs, and my wife's up here, and and my heart just sunk. And I'm like, wow, this is like a end times level event here. I'm reading. And then I heard this little still small voice in the back of my head say, you know, you need to research 
Imperial College and Global Warming. And so I start digging into it for about an hour or so, and I, I come upon the name of uh, Jeremy Grantham. And Jeremy Grantham is a multi-billionaire and arguably the biggest, uh, he's the Miss Havisham of Imperial College, if you get the literary reference. He is their, <laughs> yeah, sure. He's their biggest, biggest benefactor. And his big thing is stopping the the 300 uh, year war against fossil fuels. Uh, he had, they had just opened up a brand new wing of Imperial College uh, on climate alarmism. They actually wrote a subsequent follow-up paper to their model, which few people noticed at the time, that basically said the solution to this is to implement the Green New Deal now. And so now my spidey sense starts tangling here, okay? And I go back and I read the model again, and I start deploying some of my skills in the political world with data analysis and things of that nature. And it says right there in the model, Josh, which when you read it the first time and you just see their calculations, if you're human, it's impossible not to get emotionally worked up when you start hearing about 2 million people dying and yep. stuff like that, yep. right? But then you go back and you read it critically and intellectually, and you read them admit in their model, they don't know how the virus is spread. Remember, at this point in time, they were not, they were not admitting it was aerosolized, it was airborne, yep. okay? And so I start asking, well, <laughs> how in the world can you calculate the spread of the virus if you don't know the methodology of the spread itself? Then I started thinking to myself, how do you flatten a curve if you don't even know when the curve began? When the, we, have, we import over 300,000 Chinese college students every year. Their government lies to them, too. They could have gone home for Thanksgiving, brought it back here. It could have been here the whole cold and flu season. So I go to the CDC's website, and I find, lo and behold, the past couple of weeks, the CDC has said we have been at an epidemic level of flu in the country. Could it have been the virus was here the entire season raging because, this, because we had no coding for it and the symptoms were similar? We were just calling it the flu. There, no one was asking these questions. And that was from the, so upon the second reading of the Imperial College survey, that's when I really began uh, kind of smelling a rat. Man, so you were on top of this thing basically seriously from the get-go. I mean, in, re in retrospect, that is seriously impressive. So I'll be honest with you, back at the very, very, very beginning, and we're talking like, I think the lockdown started right around March 14th, March 15th of 2020, right? That's when all the sports season started to cancel, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. For, I, I'd say about two to three weeks, I was kind of on team, you know, let's err on the side of caution. I remember going on Sarah, sure. I remember going on Sarah Gonzalez's podcast and to Sarah's great credit, you know, for the listeners of this podcast who don't know, Sarah is obviously another Blaze TV host. She's fantastic. And I remember kind of Sarah was kind of giving me crap for that. She was like, well, what are we erring on the side of? So I was guilty of that for about three weeks or so, I'd say. But by, by mid-April, by one month in at the latest, I think, it was really evident to those of us who were paying attention whatsoever that this thing was just a pure kind of Rahm Emanuel-esque power grab. The good old mm -hmm. Rahm Emanuel quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. And that's obviously what they did there, right? But Steve, you actually also said something there that kind of I want to touch on as well. So I think one of the reasons that you and I get along so well is we have a very, very similar kind of, I think, intellectual uh, progression, if you will. So I also was obviously a big Ted Cruz guy in 2016. I actually co-wrote Senator Cruz's last book with him. It's a Supreme Court book in 2020. I've known the senator for many years now. And um, I think it's, it, it, at this point, it was like six years ago. God, so so hard to believe. But it's, it's hard for the listeners to kind of, I think, understand that for those of us who are so close to the Cruz campaign, it was really, really damn hard 
to vote for Trump yep. at, at the end of the day. I mean, there was just such intense personal bitter animosity. So I also did not end up voting for Trump in 2016. I obviously also did not vote for Hillary. But like you, Steve, I, I was just like seriously red pilled over some of what I saw over the next few years. And I also talk about the Kavanaugh moment all the time as kind of I mean, that's when they took it to DEFCON 1, wasn't it? I mean, it was really kind of right then and there, I think. Absolutely. You know, and then uh, from a theology standpoint, I'm a total depravity kind of guy anyway. So when you when you put somebody out there and you tell me he's unassailable, he's infallible. OK, well, to a good old fashioned evangelical uh, who puts the fun in fundamentalism like me, human <laughs> infallibility. Well, we fought a damn reformation over that 500 years ago. We're not really too down with human infallibility. And so here's this Anthony Fauci character we'd never heard of before knew nothing about. And suddenly he's omnipresent. He's like Max friggin Hedrum. He's in every he, he is on every screen and he's infallible, unassailable. And, and that gets my spider sense tingling as well. Where'd this guy come from? How did he build these kinds of credentials? And, and so, uh, again, <laughs> so much of this just reeked of a pattern of malfeasant narrative casting. And, you know, the, 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 I'm glad you brought up the difficulty of the transition because it with with Cruz and Trump because it this wasn't just it wasn't just issues i mean you know trump has a record now and it was a record that despite how much he blew it on covid i believe i had no problem voting for him in 2020 in fact much of that year i felt like i was working harder for his reelection than he was yeah me frankly. too yeah no kidding um, but i i think people don't understand it was it was the distortions and the kinds of things that that destroy people and families i mean i'll never forget the day that um, that I came in to work and Katrina Pearson, who I'd known for off and on for years, going back to the you know nascent days of the Tea Party, and she is now one of Trump's leading spokeswomen. She's being interviewed on CNN, uh, you know, with the Trump spin on the day's campaign events. It's the same day that Trump's people leaked in the National Enquirer that her and Ted were having an affair. Oh my God! Yeah, and so she is. She is answering questions about whether she's had or having sex with Ted Cruz. She is having to deflect and defend her character from her own candidate and campaign at the same time that she is promoting it. Okay, those allegations. You know, one of the founding members we had at Conservative Review before we joined with the Blaze was Amanda Carpenter, who worked in Ted's office, and um, uh, and and she was lumped into that as well. And, and that so angered her. I mean, if you were to follow what Am Amanda Carpenter says, um, you wouldn't even recognize her, okay? Oh, yeah. Okay. The, she was a former crew staffer, right? I mean, back in the Senate. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And I just think that there was so much of that. Um, the, the whole thing, your wife is ugly and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, it, it, that stuff, I think, was painful to that family. It, I know it was. It was painful to the families that knew them, like ours. And so now you're telling me, okay, the guy has no record whatsoever other than he noted, donated Al Sharpton once and then he endorsed Mitt Romney. All right. So we're over two. Uh, I mean, when I was on the Gingrich <laughs> campaign in 2012, we worked hard to get Trump's endorsement. We thought we had it. Then he turned around and endorsed Mitt Romney instead. Let's get to a quick break on that note. We're with the great Steve Dace. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Steve 
Steve, let's kind of pick up right where we left off there. So you and I kind of had the same progression. You know, we were Team Cruise 2016, couldn't pull the trigger in 16. By 2020, it was a very easy decision. You know, say what whatever the heck happened in 2020 happened. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of us feel like the election was somewhere between stolen versus uh, I, I, at a bare minimum in doubt. Right. It depends on whatever kind of specific kind of adjectives or verbiage you want to use. But it was some pretty shady stuff. The point is, here we are. OK, here we are. What comes next? I mean, like I, I, you and I obviously are kind of involved in this business every single day of trying to pl- chart out a course for what comes next. But I think the point is there's obviously no going back to pre-2016 Republican politics. There's no going back to pre-2016 kind of David Frenchian, you know, Wall Street Journal editorial board conservatism. But how do we keep this thing on the right track? Besides kind of like the daily rantings of folks like me and you, what can we actually do to like elect the right people who believe in the in, in the message? Like how can kind of how can the average listener of this program who cares about the issues and cares about all the all the substantive good that Trump and his movement brought to the table, how can they stay active in making sure this thing stays on the right track? Well, first thing I would start with is we're talking about a government by the consent of the governed. And I'll go to a phrase I've seen you use a lot lately. Do you know what time it is? Yep. All right. To use a biblical reference, um, the sons of Issachar were presented to King David for they understood the times and what to do about them. Okay. Do we understand the times? Do we understand that this is a worldview zero sum game? All right. It's a steel cage match. Two belief systems are entering that steel cage. Only one of them is going to come out. There will be, you cannot share a culture with people who believe in sexually grooming children or tolerating it and looking the other way in order to preserve an overall agenda. You simply cannot share a country or a culture with that. You just can't. Yep. And, and if you think you can, I've got good news for you. Don't even worry about it because they have no intent of sharing it with you anyway. Okay. So, I think we have to recognize that th- that what what the signs of the times are. <clears throat> pardon me, and here's one of them, and it's a painful truth. And I was I was late coming to this, and here's why. I, I grew up with a bully in my house. I had to fight my dad. I had to fight bullies in school. There's a lot of people that have never ever taken a punch in their life, Josh. That are are, are Twitter badasses. Okay, so if we're gonna if we're gonna say, hey, it's a zero sum game, don't say it unless you really mean it. All right. But the reality of it is that it's that we will either use all the peaceable means necessary in the, in the time that we have now to confront what I call this spirit of the age, which is a biblical reference to essentially demonic spiritual influence in a culture that takes some form of natural form, either political ideology, power, cultural hegemony, etc., we will use every peaceable means necessary to confront it in this day and age right now with the freedoms we still have, or we are going to force our children to have to confront it in other ways and means that are not peaceable that history books are written about. That's the charge that we have right now. The clock is ticking. We don't have time to just let me watch Fox News all night and then vote Republican. That's, that, that, we're, we're way, way past that. You can't outsource your citizenship any longer. The trucker convoy here in the United States just driving around D.C. and meeting with senators who already agree with them, that won't cut it. Look what the trucker convoy in Canada did. Yeah, a couple went to jail, but they ended a lot of those mandates, too. We what, must the heck, what the heck happened with that, by the way? Is that literally going on still? I mean, it's wholly fallen out of the news with the Russia-Ukraine stuff. It, it's somewhat going on. What the, one of the organizers just won her appeal to get bail and to get out, for example. 
But a lot of the policies that they asked for have actually been implemented. We have to see ourselves as forces now of disruption. We are insurgents. We have to be willing to confront. We, we can no longer be the person, uh, don't ruin Thanksgiving and holiday get-togethers, but also we can no longer be the people when Aunt Petunia starts running her mouth and MSNBC comes out, don't just be silent about it any longer. Confront everywhere. Confront this stuff absolutely everywhere uh, and, and put it on the defensive. If we do not do this, if when we elect people, they do not get the power that we give them and then punish, this is what DeSantis is doing. He, this is it's what I call a militant form of federalism. He is practicing literal colonial era interposition. I love that. He's not just, he is putting himself between the state of Florida and the feds, okay? And then he turns around and says, and if the feds come here and try to implement their policies, I will punish them and those who obey them even further. I'll fine you if you if you go ahead and put masks on the kids. It's not just we're not going to do that. I will punish you for doing it. That's what we need to do. We must punish. All right. Right now, we have one side that thinks they can use all the power they want to punish their opponents. And then the other side won't do it. You can't do that. We have to have a mutual. If we don't have mutually assured destruction here, we'll continue to have bullying until we have to fight this in ways that are not peaceable. We must use all the peaceable means we have to confront this as aggressively as we can within those peaceable means in this time that we have now, Josh. And if we don't do that, history shows what our children and grandchildren will be asked to do here and probably not too short of an order. Yeah, wow. Um, well, Steve, they don't call you the prophet of lamentation for nothing, my friend. But um, look, I mean, if you're the listener and you're not kind of rallied to take whatever action you possibly can based on that, then I'm not sure you ever will be rallied. You know, the constitutional lawyer nerd in me loves this interposition reference. This is actually kind of right out of the Federalist Papers. It's um, James Madison, Federalist 46, if I recall the citation correctly here. So this is, I mean, this is well grounded in the founding era literature. And the DeSantis thing is obviously interesting because I'm talking to you from Miami, Florida. I moved here about six months ago. To what extent are people across the country truly following what's happening here in Florida, Steve? I mean, you're in the heartland. I think you speak for a large swath of heartland voters. Because from my perspective, I'm biased here, obviously. I'm very much here and part of the Florida scene. But it seems to me like people are paying attention, but it's, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, do you think that people in kind of the Midwest and the West Coast, if you're kind of vaguely right of center, are paying attention to what's happening here in Florida? I do. Uh, you know, I live in the First Nation caucus state. If he wanted to come here and, and you know, and do an event um, it would with activists, it would be every bit on par with the at the very least with the level of energy that Trump and Cruz drew early on here uh, in the heartland. Curiosity seen as guys who challenge the status quo, who challenge the system, who offer a different path than typical milquetoast Republican. I think his floor is he would at least match the energy that Trump and Cruz produced. That ended up being the highest turnout Iowa caucus we've ever had by far, even exceeding the Obama year. Wow. All right. I think I think that would be his floor. Uh, and then I think his ceiling then would be up to him. You know, when you get to the actual retail politicking, meeting people, seeing you in person, how he would relate. But in terms of reputation only, his floor is that he would at least equate the energy level that Cruz and Trump brought to the process here in 2016. Well, you know, I, I, if you're if you're singing Tallahassee, you heard her from the guy himself sitting, sitting there on the ground in Iowa, obviously. We'll have to see what happens, obviously, with the big guy at Mar-a-Lago and all that good stuff. <laughs> um, Steve, let's let's transition a little bit. So one issue that you obviously are extremely vocal on, I'm quite vocal on this issue myself, is, of course, the right to life issue. And the Supreme Court in about three months, um, I, three months at the latest, I would say, 
is set to rule in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case. It's a case out of the Fifth Circuit. That's the court that I clerked on actually a few years ago. And this case, for the you know for the first time in 30 years, for the first time in 30 years since Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, the question of Roe versus Wade is squarely, unambiguously presented before the court. They will have a hard time ducking away for it. So first of all, Steve, I guess my first question is, what's your prediction in the case? And second of all, what the hell do we do if after all this time we still can't get this case overturned? I think that this is a win-win no matter what, what happens here. First of all, it's an indictment of the pro-life movement. And I say this is a kid born to a 15-year-old mom whose mother in the early days of Roe versus Wade, pregnant at 14, really wrestled with whether to have me as a baby or take advantage of the quote-unquote new law or not. Um, it, it's an indictment of the pro-life movement that it has taken us this 30 years to craft legislation that actually called the question of Roe into the Supreme Court, as opposed to if you wear, uh, if you, as long as you wear white after Labor Day, speak uh, in tongues and walk backwards, you can still kill your baby. The old Bob Dornan line, uh, the congressman from California, if the bill ends with the phrase, and then you can kill the baby, it's not a pro-life bill. That's what we did for 30 years after, after Casey. And it's only been in the last couple of years with things like heartbeat bills and personhood bills that we've started actually arguing our point, which is when does a life begin? When is a life a life? So if, 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 if they rule against us, then I think there's at least a win, a Dred Scott level win there. Remember, Dred Scott lost his case too, but it was so galvanizing to the abolitionist movement that it, it, uh, it really um, it radicalized them all the more. And I think that that will do the same for us in terms of no longer relying on the shibboleth, the idol of, you know, vote Republican for better justices. Or they will strike the first at least body blow against Roe in 50 years. Either one of those scenarios is a W as far as I'm concerned, because it provides clarity. I believe they will do the latter. I think this is an incredible, Roberts is a political animal. I don't think it's any coincidence that when they ruled on the jab mandates, they got rid of the ones against private citizens. They kept the ones against health care. They got rid of the ones that were probably going to lead to a damn revolt in the country. And they kept the ones that would maintain some foothold of the authoritarian uh, you know, leanings that they prefer. I think that was all calculated. I think choosing Mississippi's 15 weeks, as opposed to a couple of other states like my home state of Iowa, who has an earlier, who has like a heartbeat bill that, that would take place much earlier. I think that was intentional too, Josh. Um, and if you look at the questions that particularly Roberts asked at the hearing, I think that you can see that uh, that this is an intent to find a bill that they can get to six votes. So Roberts is writing the majority opinion and not and not Thomas, and that this will be some form of a ding of Roe v. Wade. It'll be it'll make the other side lose their damn minds. It won't go as far as we would like but it will open the door into going further with the precedent that will be set. That's what I think ends up happening. Fascinating. Okay. And how does that, if, if that happens, how does that play out politically? Because as you, you know, as you and I both know, there are so many Republicans on Capitol Hill who fundraise from national right to life people. They go to all kind of the pro-life events. They give kind of the standard boilerplate. I support the right to life speech. And then kind of privately, they go back to their offices and they are fretting. They are terrified of the prospect of this thing actually being overturned. And then they actually have to face the prospect of abortion not actually being legal. So what does that politically look like in, in the fall for Republicans if, if the court actually takes that action in June? I think it's a massive win for them. 
I think that it um, it gives uh, whatever Republican likes to say. Well, not every. I should, let me not throw everybody in. There's always 7,000 men who haven't made a sacrifice to bail yet. What the vast majority of Republicans like to say, <laughs> whether it's for, for us or against us, all right? What they love to say is the courts have spoken and we must follow the courts, all right? So this will give the squishes that you're describing, this will give them some actual level of validation for their pro-life uh, political views that they don't hold on a conviction level. They have right. a, a, a justification for it now. They can point to something now. Um, the idea of, you know, with today's technology and killing babies past 15 weeks in utero is barbaric. Uh, as Roberts pointed out at the hearing, there's only six nations on earth that still permit late term or partial birth. I know we all thought we bar- banned that in Carhartt versus Gonzalez. We didn't. All right. So there's only six nations still on earth that permit this. And we're one of them. And we're in the company of like North Korea. That's never a good thing. All right. <laughs> France doesn't permit abortion at the levels that we do. Think about that. France, where Mitterrand passes away and at his funeral, his mistress and wife both attend arm in arm. Okay. They don't let you kill your baby as late as we do here in the United States. So I think this will be a political uh, a, a, a bounty for the GOP. They'll continue the, the flawed paradigm of vote GOP for better justices. Why does that matter? In 2016, other than the economy, judicial appointments was the number one issue in exit polling. Trump won those voters by over 25 points. They're why he was president of the United States is that issue right there. Okay, that's how he got the Republican base unified behind him without judicial appointments. He would not have. So in in, in a lot of respects, this is the last latch on Pandora's box for conservatives to continue to remain loyal to the GOP are those lifetime judicial appointments. And now they'll have some kind of a living example, albeit years late, to point to, to say, see, it was a long winding road to get here, but we got here at the end. And now we are back on offense against Roe v. Wade. Trump will be able to say, hey, I'm the president who didn't say I was going to appoint justices that were pro-life. I'm the one who looked you in the eye and said, I was going to appoint justices that overturned Roe. George W. Bush didn't say that. Romney didn't say that. McCain didn't say that. I did. And I kept my word, right? He'll be able to claim that as a W because he did say that and he did keep his word. So I think politically, this will be a master stroke in that it will show if you continue the current political paradigm, it pays off, but it doesn't provide such a sweeping victory. I remember, I don't quote Dick Morris very often, but I remember when he was still working with the Clintons in the 90s, he once predicted that if you got rid of Roe versus Wade, the Republican coalition would fall apart overnight. Because if you look at Catholic voting, Catholics never voted majority Republican prior to Roe versus Wade. Uh, They were always Democrats. And then if you look at since Roe v. Wade, every time except one that a president won the Catholic vote, he won the presidency. The only the only uh, exception was 2000, the hanging chad election. All right. And if it weren't for abortion, a lot of Catholic social teaching is actually uh, more social justice when you get outside of issues like gender and abortion take abortion off the table. We Republicans struggle to get 52, 55% of Catholics now, take abortion off the table, we'll struggle to get 45% of Catholics. And so this doesn't create such a huge win that the issue can't be politically mobilized and monetized any longer either, that it's, no, that it's fulfilled, it's no longer useful. So in terms of cynical politics, it's a perfect outcome. Yeah, it's really interesting analysis. I mean, 
the court in all likelihood will, will just kick this thing back to the states, right? I mean, some of us, myself included, have actually made a somewhat kind of in the weeds argument that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment should be should and ought to be properly construed so as to actually proscribe, to prohibit abortion outright and require that the states ban it within reason over kind of regulatory limits. But there's no chance that happens. I mean, the court will cut this thing back to the state. So it's really interesting. I mean, I, I guess at the state level, obviously, will you know, all the kind of the, the classic kind of pro-life legislators and lobbyists will be flooding the state capitals to kind of get their bills across. But we're actually out of time on this particular podcast, Steve, but this was wonderful as always. So delighted to finally be able to return the favor a little bit to you. Thanks so much for joining. You bet, brother. Anytime. Take care. Welcome back. So Steve said one thing that I'm really happy he said, which is he accurately noted that one phrase that I and some others have kind of been floating around a lot in the Twitter sphere and our columns and whatnot is this idea of, quote unquote, knowing what time it is. It's kind of a cryptic phrase. And admittedly, I think people who use it tend to think that it means different things. But the upshot, insofar as I understand that, insofar as I use it, is do you understand that especially in the post-Trump era, especially in a post-Brett Kavanaugh era, Bob Mueller, Russiagate hoax, impeachment farces, all this stuff, but really Kavanaugh honestly stands up more than anything. The, the idea here is do you understand that the other side has taken this thing to DEFCON 1? Do you understand they have thrown out the quote-unquote rules by which we are playing? I mean, again, as a constitutional law guy, I just think about this a lot of times as far as kind of the Supreme Court and jurisprudence is concerned. If you look at the trajectory of the United States Supreme Court over the past 70, 80 years, it should be obvious that the so-called legal right is fiddling thumbs and tying one hand behind its back while the legal left is coming at it with all they've got. You know, Elena Kagan, when she was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court in, 20, in 2010 under the Barack Obama administration, she famously said something along the following line. She said, quote, unquote, we're all originalists now. Originalism, of course, being the predominant kind of right of center, constitutional interpretive methodology. But that's not actually what she's done. And it's certainly not what the left has done going back at least as far as the 1930s, the New Deal, Caroline Products, a case from 1938 with its infamous footnote four. But the point here, before we get too far sidetracked down the legal weeds, is the left, especially in the post-Trump era, they are not purporting to play by any semblance of quote-unquote neutrality, okay? Whether it is the big tech platforms wiping conservatives off, off the map, whether, whether they are banning a former president, whether they are preventing you from using biologically correct pronouns at the same time where apparently now Facebook or Meta, whatever the hell we're calling it, is literally not censoring calls for violence against Russians. That's literally what's happening right now, people, okay? According to the new rules from Facebook, Meta, whatever we're calling it, you will not get banned if you call for the murder of Russians, but you can get banned if you quote-unquote misgender a transgender person by using a biologically correct pronoun. Those are the rules of the game. I didn't make them, but those are the rules of the game. The banking services stuff, the financial services stuff is a whole, whole, whole nother thing. 
look at what's happening, obviously, with the truckers in Canada. And look at what's happening with, you know, quote unquote, fringe people, as if it's not going to come to all of us. Folks like Laura Loomer, who have effectively been shut off from banking services. They can't take out loans, can't get credit. Their credit scores are, are, are going down. This is how they fundamentally kind of unperson us. And the idea here of knowing what time it is, is the idea that if you want to fight back and get a civilization, you're going to have to get your hands a little dirty, okay? You're going to have to start legislating bans on critical race theory, Chris Rufo style, and you're going to have to take the bolts that they shoot at you. You have to kind of take with a smile when you get called a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe, just deal with it. You're going to have to basically legislate on the gender ideology issue, much like my governor, Ron DeSantis, and the Florida legislature has done right here in the Sunshine State. You're going to have to get in the weeds and get dirty. And on the foreign policy front, just to kind of bring this whole thing full circle here, knowing what time it is means that we are so, so, so bogged down by problems on the home front that we don't have time. We don't have time, resources, or the heart to police the world by ourselves anymore. And as that pertains to Russia and Ukraine, that better the hell mean that we don't get involved in World War III because we better be saving up all of our ammo for the real fight with the Chinese Communist Party. So I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Josh Hammer Show. We'll catch you next week.